to The Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about what's helped them to work at their best and how we can create organisations where everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and award-winning author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. You'll find the show notes at helenbeedham.com where you can also sign up for my insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and home. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this ninth episode in the sixth series of The Business of Being Brilliant. For next week's series wrap-up episode, I'll be sharing some collective wisdom from all my guests in this series. But before then, I've got a cracking conversation with another brilliant guest to share with you after this brief weekly update from me. Did you press pause at all in October? Maybe for half term or a sneaky breakaway? I had a lovely long weekend off involving some coastal walks, geocaching, which I actually love, and a theatre trip to see the brilliant puppetry-based show Kinder about the experience of children who came to the UK on one of the kinder transport trains at the outbreak of World War II. It's touring around the country and I highly recommend it. Aside from my lovely weekend off, I've been busy working with new clients and having lots of early stage conversations about potential pieces of work. And I've really been missing taking time to absorb new workplace research, to read things I've been bookmarking endlessly, and, well, to think. It's the old cliche, I guess, of being so busy with the demands of the here and now that anything more developmental or longer term in nature keeps getting pushed into tomorrow. It's definitely something I hear people mention in my time intelligence workshops that I run with teams. And I'm helping a client at the moment think about how they address exactly that as part of their workplace culture. So I've been trying to make better use of in-between time, on the train, in the car, 10 minutes after a meal, to catch up on some of that reading and thinking. And I thought I'd share three things that I found particularly interesting or useful lately. And I've put links to all of these in the show notes. First up is a Forbes article about how to recraft employees' psychological contract to boost engagement. This offers 10 great nuggets of advice by Viola Rollins, who's executive director of the London Business School Leadership Institute, a former colleague and a great friend of mine. Secondly, an Evening Standard article on how fertility has become a workplace perk. I spoke with the author Claire Cohen to share my own past experience many years ago of juggling IVF and work, And she cites numerous examples of what leading firms are offering by way of support to employees today. And finally, a new podcast series from The Economist called Boss Class on how to be a better manager, featuring some really interesting interviews with top CEOs. The host is the editor of my favourite column about work and careers, Bartleby. So I'm chuffed about this new audio offering. 
And I hope one or more of these sparks your own thinking or helps you with the challenge you're addressing. Last of all, if your team is groaning under a heavy workload and it feels like that's turning into a marathon, not a sprint, then join me at my free 30-minute webinar this Wednesday the 8th of November at 12.30pm GMT on Tackle Team Overload. I'll explain how to manage your team's time so you're all working smarter, not harder. The registration link's in the show notes, and if you're listening to this after the 8th of November, then do check back on my website because I try and run a free webinar roughly every month or so. Right, let's hear now from this week's guest, who has a deep sense of purpose and curiosity about creating meaningful experiences of work for everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Helen Burier as my guest this week. Helen is a creative and curious global HR leader who's passionate about creating remarkable work cultures based on empowerment, collaboration and trust. Throughout her non-conformist, squiggly career, as she describes it, she's strongly believed that by enabling self-fulfillment at work, we can unleash human potential, transform business performance and create a more tolerant, empathetic and kind society. Helen has helped the largest FMCG retail and pharma organisations and the smallest of startups to scale for growth amidst changing socio-economic landscapes. Most recently, Helen was Chief People Officer of the fintech business SOPA, which acquires to, aspires to become the UK's best bank. There, Helen led the design and delivery of their people proposition, launching some of the most progressive employment practices in their sector. Zopa was awarded number three most loved workplace in the UK in 2022, and earlier this year, Helen was nominated one of the 250 global members of the Women in Fintech Power List. Before Zopa, Helen held senior HR executive roles at MS, PepsiCo, and GSK, and she also ran her own people strategy business called Bloom. She's fluent in French, has a dual nationality French English family who have floated between the UK, France and Switzerland. She holds a National Vocational Qualification, or NVQ, in floristry and is an alumni of London Business School and the University of London. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Helen. Well, thank you so much, Helen, for that wonderful welcome and for letting me join you today. Very exciting. Uh, yeah. I am excited too about getting into a great conversation with you about your career and your book, which I didn't mention in the introduction, but we'll come on to shortly. And I'm also delighted. Uh, I always like to celebrate firsts on the podcast, and I'm sure there's lots of things we'll be celebrating about your career and your views on the world of work. But I am proud to announce that you are officially our first accredited florist on the <laughs> podcast. So I was really pleased to include that detail. <laughs> well, and I'm very proud of, of doing it. I went to night school at a council-run community college when I was 30. I think because I am a creative thinker and that was a great outlet for creativity. And we all have side projects, hobbies or pastimes that actually are really important for the way that we show up at work. So. Yeah, yeah. And has it been useful, that NVQ? Do you like amaze your colleagues and friends and family with your floral uh, creations? Or? Well, we did have um, a learning at work week at Zopa where we encouraged team members to come in and share second skills. Um, and so we had a really lovely time actually there running a, um, a floristry uh, session. 
um, and discovered some fantastic budding florists actually in the team in places like workplace technology and other areas of the organization. So, um, but you know, there is a language of flowers. I think um, it's, it's a wonderful way to, to express joy. Yeah, fantastic to hear that. I, I love all the different ways companies get creative about bringing people together and sharing skills and interests and you know, just finding out actually what people have in common that they enjoy chatting about and, and doing together. And I mentioned in the introduction that you describe yourself as having a non-conformist squiggly career. And that probably got people interested straight away. So what does she mean by that? <laughs> what do I mean? Yeah, yeah actually, I'm very lucky in that I had the chance to meet Helen Tuffer and Sarah Ellis earlier this year who who actually wrote the book uh, The Squiggly Career which you might be uh, familiar with and I'm yeah. I'm certainly one of their poster childs. I, th- I think what I mean by that is certainly when I was at university and starting out on my career there was a real sense of there being a, a ladder that your career would progress along a clearly trodden path you'd progress in status and in power. Actually my first career experience was with Marks and Spencer and at that time Actually, the more senior you were, the larger the number of windows that you had in your office. So there were these very visible, actually, you know, mm. representations of your status and your power. And I you know, bucked that trend very late, some might say, at the age of 40, and decided to move into very different spheres where I wasn't as powerful. I was certainly not earning as much, but it was really about self-enrichment and exposing myself to new environments and skills and capabilities that helped me to see the world of work in a different way and actually gave me you know, some of the best relationships and connections that I've had in my career. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And, and I'm wondering what was the motivating force behind that decision not to follow the traditional ladder, as you call it. And, and I remember when we spoke prior to recording today, you said something about how you'd reflected and you realised you performed best in organisations that treated you as a human and not as an asset. Is that something that you've been consciously aware of throughout and gone looking for? Or is it just something that's one of the reflections we gain over time as the work years add up? (laughs) Well, actually, I'm researching a book, as we um, mentioned in in the intro, might come on to that, but that has given me the opportunity to meet a lot of people who are exploring what they want from the world of work and from the design of their roles. And a common theme does seem to be that people don't really ask themselves a lot of questions about whether they are being their authentic selves until they are further along that career path. And certainly my awakening, if I can use that word, came a little later, probably because I experienced things along the way um love and loss joy and pain as humans do as we age and those experiences help me to understand who I am perhaps where my best self lies and what sorts of environments are going to enjoy those strengths and allow me to feel I'm being an authentic and impactful leader yes yeah I really understand that and I Yeah, I can totally see and agree how with experience and age comes wisdom and with different career experiences, we find out what it is that we enjoy, that we need, that we don't enjoy, that doesn't help us work well at work. And I look back now at like my very first job at at Harrods working on the management training scheme and with the directors there. And there was a lot of bonkers and slightly exciting stuff about it, but it was also at the time a culture that I wasn't really that suited to. But you don't know that when it's your first job. <laughs> no, I think I um, was a first generation university student. I had very few role models around me for professional accomplishment. 
And I was just incredibly grateful um, that any uh, sort of blue chip organization would want me at the tender age of 21. And from there came a hunger to achieve and do well and be impactful, which is a feeling that actually I think most people would share in those early years of their career. I think it was only when I experienced some adversity and I began to understand why work was so important to me and what it was that I wanted to achieve and experience from work that I felt emboldened to make some choices that were right for me, but maybe on paper looked unusual. And certainly stepping away from quite a senior executive career path at a global business like PepsiCo to go and work with very, very small uh, startups and privately backed organisations as an independent looked a little unusual at that time. I think on the back of the pandemic, actually, there are many people who have made similar uh, choices, but certainly back in 2018, that looked reckless or brave, depending on your um, perspective. Yeah, yeah. And interesting how much things have shifted since then, which relatively short period of time about how those kinds of significant transitions are becoming much more the norm and you know and portfolio careers and all of that and and just people making very individual choices and not worrying so much about whether that fits a certain mold or societal expectations and so is there something in particular that you look for that makes you stay in an organization and I'm being a bit selfish asking that question because I'm mulling over that question and talking to people about it for my potential book too so given you've had such different experiences different environments and different industries what keeps you in an organization many things Helen I mean I think it's a really interesting question and for your listeners I'd really encourage them to explore this question too and think about why do I get up and go to work in the morning lots of us don't have the luxury of being able to ask ourselves too many questions we need to work to live and but most of us are lucky enough to earn more than we actually need to survive it might be a little bit more it might be a lot more depending on on what you do for a living I made a a choice uh, back in 2018 to look for organisations that were trying to make lives better. And I still hold true to that principle. So whether that organisation is building products or services, it's really important for me that that profitability or quest for profitability is balanced with a really meaningful purpose that's grounded in trying to make life better and trying to make society better. Purpose today is a a beautiful but challenging thing. I think if you really start to dig deep behind organisational purpose, you sometimes find it can be a little thin and perhaps some beautiful narrative that doesn't really bear out in the culture and ways of working. So that's something that really has been important for me. And I'm very lucky to have worked with some great organisations that really bring that to life. I mean, it won't be a surprise to you to hear that embracing me as a whole person it is absolutely high up on the list. And I think I have, like everybody, in intellectual needs from my work as well as emotional needs and being part of a community and a tribe that embraces some of my creative thinking and innovative thinking that's willing to try new things mm-hmm. with measured risk and willing to be surprised um, is, is really important. We're, we're part of a connected system um, so I think having a healthy competitive spirit is really important to an organisation, but also recognising that we can learn from peers and yeah, embrace um, broader society. Um, yeah, I would say that those are my key criteria. Yeah. But I'm very, very open to meeting organisations and learning more about how they work and why they work in that particular way. 
particularly what I would call the younger organisations. And there are a lot of those in the PE space. But I think my career choices are wildly different to those of the next generation behind me and the next generation behind that. And reverse mentoring and being open and attentive to the sorts of choices others are making early on in their careers is really important to help me then consider why I'm making the choices I'm making about my future. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess with each time one of us makes and perhaps what might be considered unconventional career move and openly asks questions and shares our own thinking about the reasons for that or our reflections on what we get from work, what we want from work, you know, that's that's helping to send signals to anyone in their career that there are alternatives because quite often you can look in your organisation and think, okay, well, there's one route to the top really and, and it's got to be a route to the top and there isn't a route that leads somewhere else. And I think... I really feel excited when I talk to people on this podcast about unconventional career paths or about people that have really switched across industries or taken on very different new disciplines and skill sets. It's it's not something I've done so much in my career. So I find it very reassuring that people are out there doing that and it's possible. It's a lovely reminder that we don't have to think narrowly. We can make what might feel like quite a bold or risky decision and and just go with it and see what we learn from it absolutely and I mean I think one thing I would say is that I do look at roles as experiences and adventures rather than positions so I'm really keen to understand what is it that we're trying to achieve and what's the journey going to look like in broad terms over three years and over five years and certainly in the last five years my career path has been more about a collection of experiences and adventures that have helped me to learn a lot of new things have lots of personal impact but also have a really fulfilling enriched life and when I go out and and mentor others I'm really keen for them to think about what sorts of experiences interest me to ask as many questions as possible be as curious as possible there are so many job types today that didn't exist even 10 years ago so curiosity a little bit of thrill seeking is definitely the key to a healthy life I remember reading an article not very long ago about some research done with those over the age of 90 and their life lessons being shared with the younger generations and one of them said say yes to everything within reason I'm sure the person meant but say yes more than no yeah, that's. I love the idea of you know curiosity and thrill seeking. We don't necessarily associate thrill seeking with work, but why not? Why shouldn't we? And great to hear about that research as well. I, funny if I was reading a book recently and speaking to another podcast guest who was sharing the example of the, the I think the British man who decided to say yes to everything for like a year and. I think wrote a book about it. His name escapes me and about all the incredible situations and experiences he ended up in. I think he then learned to embrace the within reason bit of it, which <laughs> he didn't quite apply at the beginning. No, no I think, I mean, so I think the concept sort of saying yes to everything is that very often we say no to things really out of fear that we're worried that we will embarrass ourselves or look silly. So having that conversation with yourself about what's the worst that could happen really. And am I prepared to embrace that? And actually as a, the British are really well known for sort of being very self-deprecating, I think sometimes far, far too much, but be willing to try new things. And yes, sometimes you might laugh at yourself. That's not a bad thing either. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And speaking of trying new things, you've mentioned and I've mentioned that you are researching and writing a book, the working title of which is Peoplematics. Could you tell us a bit more about it, how you're finding that new experience? Because it's a a big, ambitious thing uh, to research and write a book, but also what it's about and how it's addressing some of the things we're getting into in this conversation. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Yeah, as as we've been sharing, I've had an interesting set of life experiences over the past five years, the majority of which have been in smaller developing businesses who are building people environments from scratch and creating impactful employer brands that attract talent to the promise, to the mission, to the purpose of, of a business that's really only just begun. And I think I've been really passionate in the last five years about the value of workplace culture in creating successful, profitable business, but also the importance of organisational culture to broader society and the fact that you know, we increasingly in a world that's governed by progressive technology, that's you know, broadly a very good thing as long as it's enabling uh, human needs uh, rather than you know, acting as a counterbalance to those needs. But it does mean that you know, more and more of our life effectively is being governed by algorithms and work if we look forward 10, 20, 50 years, is likely to be one of the last remaining things in life where we don't choose the individuals that we have to interact and exchange and, and partner. And so those values, those behaviours of tolerance, inclusion, empathy become more and more important, I think, if we're taking a very futuristic lens. Um, the book began really um, as a, f- a piece of work to understand what are our emotional needs from work. If we were designing our roles and designing workplaces for ourselves today how would we create that to ensure that we deliver as much of our personal impact potential as possible uh, that we feel as fulfilled as possible because we know that that's when we do our best work and that's when we know productivity is unleashed and it's been fascinating so far to meet a whole host of individuals performing very different roles my commitment is to interview 500 human beings all performing completely different types of roles across all sectors and I've enjoyed doing just that so far from butcher to to CEO to board member to paramedic to beauty therapist and what's I think so heartwarming about this research is that ultimately when you strip away status capability market value human beings are coming to work for three very similar reasons the first of which is to make some form of personal impact on the world humans are one of the only species that know about our own demise and I think that subconsciously does drive us to want to feel that our time on earth has been worth something and that we have made some sort of meaningful impact on the people around us and that's a very unifying factor across all across all human beings. The other two being part of a community or a tribe we're not designed really to live alone we want to be connected to others at whatever level we're operating at in a business and lastly some form of security, be that financial security or a sense of belonging um, to to a mission and purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And so every single person I speak to mentions at least two of those three things with the personal impact being consistent actually across every interviewee. So if we were to design workplaces that focused far more on creating opportunities and experiences Um, that fit the strengths of individuals, that allow them to unleash the maximum um, potential personal impact. We're going to have um, fantastic environments where people are performing at their very best, 
productivity goes through the roof, but where we also see inclusion, tolerance and empathy being practiced at their highest levels. And those are the sorts of cultures I'm intrigued to create. And I think we will see more and more job crafting in the future to enable that. So interesting to hear the very, very wide range of people and roles you've spoken to. I'm really struck that there's so much commonality in such a variety of jobs and and undoubtedly personality types and preferences as well. And am I right in saying in the book, you're also going to be addressing the question of how organisations value people's emotional connection to work? Yes, you're right in that that's that's the targeted objective now is to come up with a different form of language that helps us to capture what the financial value of cultures and workplace behavior is when we're assessing the profitability and performance of a business. Yeah. I think it struck me since I moved into this space back in 2018 that there is really no consideration of culture in the formal valuations of companies when we look at share price. I find that very surprising, um, given that we all know how critical your talent base is to a successful organisation. And we've seen so many companies and organisations suffer Mm. from a market cap perspective when culture goes wrong or when leadership behaviour goes wrong. Uh, Many examples this year alone. Um, So I, I think that's a challenge that I've set myself with friends is how could we come up with some alternative language that would allow us to make a financial assessment of culture and really speak to ESG, the S of ESG in a different way. And that's obviously why the book has it, People Matics, of its working title. Yes. And you're reminding me that back in my consulting days, I used to work on merger integrations from a people perspective. And quite often that was at the pre-deal stage where they were doing due diligence, or perhaps if one company was acquiring another. And I was often involved in effectively assessing the corporate culture of the company, of both companies, actually, so they could understand the similarities and differences and the degree of risk that might pose. And even back then, and I'm going back, you know, kind of 20 years, 15, 20 years, everybody was acknowledging, gosh, even then workplace culture is really critical for company performance and even stock market value. But nobody had a way of measuring it then and so I'm quite gobsmacked to think 15-20 years on there's still no recognized way of doing that I know there's lots of terms and disciplines like human capital measurement and metrics and there's obviously now we have the language and some frameworks and metrics around ESG but as you say it's often very diversity focused or perhaps community outreach focused so I find it astonishing that we've had 20 years of on-off corporate failings and um, examples of cultures that haven't encouraged positive engagement and behaviours and and it's cost the company dearly as a result and and we're still trying to figure this out so I'm really excited to hear that you're working exactly on this and really interested to hear you know when the book comes out, what conclusions and advice you'll reach. Would you agree that companies are going so far in measuring how well they're meeting people's needs? Because things like happiness metrics and engagement metrics and well-being metrics, a lot of companies will say, oh, but we do lots on that front. Engagement survey, we measure our people's well-being. So somebody in an HR role or business leadership role might be listening to this saying, 
yeah, we do measure all that stuff. Would you argue that actually they're not really doing it properly? <laughs> I say about properly. I mean, look, I'm a huge advocate of people analytics, and that's a function that we built up from scratch at Zopa with huge success. I mean, it's such a driving enabling force for a people team to show what it's worth. And to start to have real evidence-based discussions at the executive table that support really strong decision-making. But we, you know, I think what I've learned over the past five years is the importance of storytelling as a skill. And you know, people data and people data analytics allows you to tell particular stories. Um, I think a lot of the metrics that we have today are focused more at a total organisation level. Um, and it's very often we see very strong correlation between employee engagement and, and organisations, but doesn't necessarily reflect how someone feels about their specific part of a business, their specific role within a business, their specific mm. relationship with their manager, because it's done at such a helicopter level. So I think with all of um, these sorts of stats, uh, you, know, you, you can paint a picture in a particular way. I think where this work is going is to really encourage exploration at that individual level. And you, I would suggest that most organisations are likely to see a huge amount of diversity in that picture if they were to really explore um, yeah, the person-by-person level. I don't think a lot of what I'm saying in the book is new in that we've known about the, the value of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and the importance of autonomy since you know, 1976, the work that Hackman and Olden did. And we know about self-determination theory since, um, but we haven't really, I think, as people leaders thought about how we bring that into the measurement of culture and really begun to explore what is the degree of autonomy that people are feeling within their roles how is that resulting in better performance management that's less you know, structured around processes and forms? And how are we flattening organisations to try and remove the degree of hierarchy that we're experiencing today? Yeah. And that's certainly something that I think as my research progresses, we'll see some correlations between those really effective cultures and this degree of spans of control and hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Really, really interesting. And have you spoken to 500 people? Are you still looking for people? people I'm listening? Still, yes, I'm still looking for people. Um, I think the interviews will continue for at least another three months. So okay. right now I'm about 25% of the way through. Okay. I'm very lucky in that I have some fantastic connections who've allowed me to go and actually go into workplaces like the MOD and also some manufacturing plants yeah, where yeah. I actually talk to groups, which is going to be fascinating. So that's happening uh, throughout the balance of, of September. Great. So if you're still looking for people and people are listening, thinking, I'd love to talk to you about my experience. Is that something that you would be open to? Yes, of course. Yeah. Reach out to me through LinkedIn. And this question of how could we measure a financial contribution of, of culture, of people effort. I'd really love to hear people's yeah. thoughts about that, whether they agree or disagree. A good discussion about this is, is always worth having. But I think yeah, very interesting to see how we try to advance this question of the S in, in ESG. Yeah, fantastic. So there you go, listeners. That's an invitation to connect with Helen if you want to share your experiences and needs from the world of work and also an exam question to ponder. We'd love to hear your views. You can either email me directly at hello at helenbeedham.com or I'll put Helen's LinkedIn profile link in the show notes as well so you can get in touch directly with her. But that's a great question to be pondering. I've been so enjoying talking with you, Helen. Thank you so much. Quick uh, thoughts on when your book comes out, so people are aware of that if they want to follow its progress. 
Well, I provide regular updates on on LinkedIn, so definitely check out the profile and see how things are um, progressing. I'm hoping it will be out um, towards the middle of next year, but obviously as that progresses, I'm happy to share that with you, with your listeners. Exciting. Well, best of luck with cracking on with writing and finishing that piece of the book journey and with all the conversations you're having. It's been so fascinating chatting with you. And some of the things in particular I'm taking away that I've loved from the conversation that you've talked about, how you view roles as experiences and adventures and not as positions and encouraging everyone to be more reflective about what we need from work, what we're getting from work, and to go thrill-seeking a little bit as well. Thank you so much for being a brilliant guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review, and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant. Brilliant.